well as the talk, will be audio recorded and will be on our SOPA website. Uh, please place $14 in the basket on your table and uh, appoint someone to count it. And the format of our meeting is 25 to 30 minutes of talk, followed by lunch. We have a buffet in the back. And then a question and answer period will be finished about 1.30. So it's my pleasure today to introduce you to Dr. Trevor Harrison, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Lethbridge and director of the Parkland Institute. Born and raised in Edmonton, he holds a BA from the University of Winnipeg, MA from the University of Calgary, and PhD in psychology in sociology, sorry, my own field, <laughs> from the University of Alberta. He worked on Manitoba's Guaranteed Annual Income Experiment in the 1970s. His broad areas of specialty include political sociology, political economy, and public policy. In addition to numerous journal articles and book chapters, Dr. Harrison is the author, co-author, and co-editor of nine books. His op-ed columns frequently appear in both local and national newspapers. Join with me in welcoming Dr. Trevor Harrison. Okay, we think we've got our uh, cords out of the way here. Uh, well, it's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, once again, it's been a little while since I've been here, but I guess over the years I've probably, uh, uh, how's the sound? Sounds good? No. Yes. Uh, okay. Turn it up a little. A little louder. A little louder. A little louder. Okay. We're good now? Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and uh, thank you for coming out on such a uh, gorgeous day. Uh, I am going to be talking about uh, the idea of a guaranteed annual income. Uh, as uh, Bev mentioned, I worked on the program back in the 70s, uh, actually right in the uh, heartland of it, uh, Dauphin, Manitoba at that time. And uh, I'll, I'll put my uh, hand in some sense here to uh, say what I've told a few people informally just before this talk began. Uh, when I first actually began that program, uh, the, uh, working on it, I was sold on the idea it was actually a fabulous idea and that in fact at that time we were told that it was almost certainly going to be implemented uh, very quickly uh, in Canada. Uh, but in fact, it's, uh, oh, it sounds like a rock concert actually. <laughs> More reverb, more reverb. Yeah. Okay, we'll start again. So uh, when I first actually started doing that, uh, working on the program years ago, I thought it was actually a, a fabulous idea, and it's, it's always kind of nice to uh, come back to it. Uh, but over the years, I've actually uh, started to have some real concerns about uh, the program. And so what I'm going to hope to do today, though, is tell you a little bit about, in theory, how these programs work. Some of the experiments that are going on, I'll take you back to the Mincom experiment in Manitoba and some of the findings out of that. And finally, uh, where I want to spend the most time is to tell you a 
uh, the, uh, the pros and the cons of such a program so that by the time you leave here today, you'll have a good understanding of, uh, of those issues uh, that, uh, and uh, what, what those programs actually mean. Um, and finally, actually, what I'll, I'll do, because as I've said, I've become a little less positive about the idea of a, a GAI, uh, I'll suggest, in fact, some ways I think are perhaps better ways of dealing with what I think is uh, a very looming crisis in the labor market. So, uh, with no more ado, I'll take you through a few things here. So yes, uh, GAI is uh, very much suddenly in the news again. Uh, Conrad Black actually had a national column where he was talking about uh, debating. He was actually uh, opposed to the idea. Uh, and uh, along with Janice McKinnon, who was actually a former uh, NDP finance minister in Saskatchewan. Uh, but on the other hand, he was they were debating with Hugh uh, Siegel, a longtime uh, Tory in Canada, yeah. Senator. Uh, and Paul Begala, who is a uh, uh, Democrat uh, in the United States. He's on TV quite often. If you watch CNN, you'll see him there. So they had to debate about it. Uh, and then more recently, actually, the uh, uh, parliamentary budget officer uh, came out with an uh, uh, estimate of how much a program would cost. Now, one of the things here, uh, costs uh, directly, but of course, uh, it would be designed to replace a number of other programs. And as I'll get into, one of the reasons why some people like the idea of a GAI is, in fact, because it would reduce costs uh, other kinds of programs. So other programs that we have uh, might be eliminated. But in any case, it's very much in the news. Uh, and as I'll get into, there are some real problems arising in the labor market uh, around the globe that I think are kind of the backdrop to why people are talking about it again now. So the idea of a guaranteed annual income is a pretty old idea in some sense. Uh, back, there was a what was called the Speen-Hamlin system uh, in England back uh, in the late part of the 18th century, early part of the 19th century. Uh, and it came about in the context of the poor laws in England. Uh, and what, one of the things that was actually happening was as more and more people moved from the countryside into the cities to work into those uh, factories, uh, there was also a lot of concern about what was referred to as the dangerous classes. So there was people who uh, were suddenly without work uh, and uh, were, you know, as one would do if you need to survive, uh, you know, beginning to engage in such things as theft and assault and other things. So the system was kind of designed uh, ultimately to provide a subsidy in addition to what were already low wages. Uh, and it was scaled according to the price of bread and, and the family size. Uh, the, this income at the time was provided regardless of, of the work itself. But one of the things, one of the criticisms that came up almost immediately, and it's one of the criticisms existing today, is that in some sense it provides a subsidy to employers. And so there's no incentive for employers to actually raise the wages of their workers. So what you have is then in a capitalist system, the state subsidizing capitalists so they can make more money, which seems kind of an odd way to actually do it. Uh, and is again a, a fairly pronounced uh, negative in terms of these programs. Um, 
One of the things about, it's hard to talk about guaranteed annual income programs separate from a whole series of other programs we have, uh, most particularly such things as social allowance. One of the ways that we've done our uh, rewarded people or given them money in, in this form has been that uh, there's always had to been an incentive that work is, we view, more important than non-work. And so, uh, to work uh, means that you are going to get a little bit more money than people who are not working at all. Uh, and the way we've run social programs for now going on 200 years is that we play off the, the abjectly poor against the people who are just a little less poor, the working poor versus the non-working poor. And again, I think this is actually problematic in terms of social policy. Um, it, as I said, is an old idea that has been uh, recently revived in a lot of uh, instances. A lot of experiments are going on. Now, Ontario, of course, uh, in the midst of a, a provincial election, uh, they had launched uh, last year, I believe, a program, a pilot project in Hamilton and Thunder Bay. Uh, Finland has been engaged in this uh, program as, as well, an experiment. Uh, there's also uh, been some ideas about bringing about such a program or experimenting with it in the Netherlands. And finally, there's experiments going on in Kenya, Uganda, California, Scotland, and India. Uh, and it was my pleasure actually about three years ago now, Parkland Institute, who hold our uh, annual conference every uh, November, uh, we brought in Guy Standing, uh, who is a well-known uh, uh, economist, worked with the International Labour Organization, and uh, Guy is very uh, favorable to the idea of a guaranteed annual income. And uh, there's an organization internationally of people who uh, are, are looking at this idea. And so they've experimented on in India, in one of the uh, northwestern states there. And there are some positives that have come out of this. One of the most positive things, as, uh, as Guy Standing was telling me, uh, is that it seems actually to have had a really beneficial effect on uh, women, particularly. It's kind of a liberating thing in terms of gender relations uh, in that province. So I'm not saying there aren't some potentially good things, but there are also some negatives we should pay attention to. The main point is this is an idea that seems to now seem to be springing up all around the world so again, you have to ask the question, what is it that in this time and place, at a time when globalization is in some crisis, uh, why is it that people are interested in this? And again, to cut to the chase, I suggest it's because a lot of people are aware of the fact we're facing, uh, we're on the verge of a major crisis of work, uh, where machines are going to be replacing people like crazy, and unemployment rates are going to be high, and just as in the late 18th century in England, some people became very concerned about the dangerous classes and about people riding in the streets who had no money and no employment and no chance of employment. So a lot of people are looking at it as a political mechanism in that context. Uh, this is a, uh, I'll skip past this one, I think, uh, but we'll have it on the website. It's just an interesting quote, though, from uh, the experiment being done in India. Uh, as I say here, it's a strange brew of advocates here. 
uh, and you'll see it actually has a, uh, you know, even going back in time, Thomas Paine writing about it or alluding to the idea. Uh, but you see here some people who are quite describably on the right of the political spectrum, Milton Friedman, almost kind of the, the godfather of globalization and neoliberalism, uh, economist Robert Theobald, uh, but also Martin Luther King, um, James Tobin, kind of a uh, center-left uh, economist, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, again, you know, center-left, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Roger Douglas, very much on kind of the right of center uh, from New Zealand, and a number of other people. So you have, uh, as I was saying to uh, some of the people with the media earlier, you have people right across the political spectrum from left to right who think it's actually a good idea, and you have people right across the political spectrum from left to right who also think it's a really bad idea. So what's going on here? Well, the people who like it, like it for different reasons from each other, and the people who dislike it, dislike it for also different reasons. Uh, and we'll get into some of that. Here is a list of just some of the people in Canada again who like it. So we have Hugh Siegel, as I said, a, a Tory, you know, old Toryism. Ken Battle uh, with the Caldon Institute. Uh, Elizabeth May, Green Party and Thomas Corshane, who is a fairly mainstream economist and I guess would be tip, uh, you know, could be characterized as being right of center. Um, so again, you have lots of people, uh, high profile people who are uh, in favor of this. So how does this actually work? Uh, well, there's a couple of ways of describing it. One is a negative income tax uh, and the other is a universal demogrant. Uh, and I'll get into those in a second. Uh, they are uh, designed as being universal and unconditional. This is one of the uh, positives of it, as a lot of supporters will say. It's not means-tested. So a lot of the way we actually run, for example, uh, social allowance programs is there's a lot of intrusion on the part of government asking people, you know, what did you earn? Uh, traditionally in the past, such things with uh, welfare clients, uh, especially if they're female, is there a male in the house, you know, so all sorts of really intrusive kinds of things. This is ideally designed to be uh, not means tested. You're a citizen, we're going to give you the money on some basis. Um, it's in this case not related particularly to labor force participation, living arrangements, or how the money is spent. So again, uh, two uh, systems here. The, the first one I'll just talk about basically is the universal demigrant. It's the basic amount is paid to each citizen and not clawed back despite any additional earnings. So you just have a kind of a flat amount of uh, money there. Uh, the negative income tax is one where uh, there is a, an amount that is given uh, and then you, but the incentive, the hope is that people will continue to work uh, and so as they work and they earn something, the basic amount is now clawed back. So in the demigrant system, it's not clawed back at all, but in the negative income tax, it is actually uh, clawed back to a point at which once you've earned well above the amount that is given, you're no longer receiving that because of course now your wages are sufficiently above that in any case. Um, the GAI in Canada, 
the way it uh, came about. Came about actually out of a, uh, a lot of concerns in the 1960s. A lot of programs, there was a lot of experiments, a lot of commissions, very Canadian thing, let's strike a commission. Uh, there were a lot of things like that went on at that time. There was a very activist government. There was the idea that government could go out there and design various social programs uh, that would work for people. Uh, and so out of this, uh, there was uh, finally a, a federal working paper on social security in 1973. And it was in this context, there was a lot of discussions going on between provinces and the federal government. And finally, it was decided that there would be an experiment conducted uh, in Manitoba. Uh, the government at the time in Manitoba was uh, Premier uh, Ed Schreier of the NDP. He was favorable to the idea. The NDP was certainly favorable. The federal government, of course, was the liberal government of Pierre Trudeau. And the two of them came together on the idea of conducting this experiment. Now, a key thing to recognize here is that when this experiment was conducted, it had already been run many times in the United States. I believe it was in uh, Washington and in New Jersey they had done uh, this experiment. Uh, and the results of those experiments were, and this was a key point, that there was no uh, work disincentive. The people who received the money uh, did not show any inclination to work less. And that was a key thing in terms of selling it to people if we we're going to do it. And in fact, the idea for conducting the experiment was that uh, uh, we run the experiment, but we already know the results. And on, based on that, we will be able to sell it to Canadians that this is a program we should actually adopt. Uh, many of the people who came up to assist in the experiment uh, were in fact uh, American uh, academics who had worked on the original programs in the United States. And so they assisted in the setting up of the design features of the, uh, the program. So the result was the Mincom Manitoba experiment, which basically ran from 1974 to 79. Uh, the, um, let's say here, it was based on experiments in the United States. Uh, it was, uh, and it's a monumental achievement, it was the largest social science experiment ever conducted in Canada. I believe that's safe to say it probably still is. Uh, there was a quite large uh, stratified sample for those who are interested in the methodology of this. And from that, then they cut it back uh, because uh, the experiment uh, involved looking at certain populations. So you wanted it in terms of like the demographics, the family structure, uh, age, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, $17 million at that time, a lot of money uh, at that time. Uh, I think probably the car I owned at that time, uh, brand new, almost cost $2,000, so it's, it's a lot. Um, this, I throw in just for down a trip down memory lane, this is actually the building it operated out of in Dauphin, Manitoba. It still exists every once in a while when I'm back to visit with relatives out there. I popped by just for a trip down memory lane. It's, uh, it was converted from some kind of factory at that time, uh, and it's gone back to some kind of uh, service, uh, you know, agricultural implements or something, I suspect, again. Um, main sites for the Mincom experiment, uh, Dauphin, Winnipeg, Swan River, Nipua, and Minnedosa. Uh, the main site was Dauphin. Uh, and this was where the information was uh, by and large collected. Researchers would go out, interviewers, to the other sites. 
uh, bring back the material. It would be coded. Uh, this too is a trip down memory lane, remembering how we had these computer cards and punching things in and everything else. It would go off to Winnipeg where it would be, that's where the final uh, entry into computer systems would go on. Computers that were at least as big as this entire building. Um, and uh, yeah, so it ran for roughly five years. They gathered an incredible amount of data. And then in 1979, it was shelved. And the data disappeared. Uh, and over the years, I have to say, I kept thinking, wow, we collected all that stuff. Shame nothing actually really came out of it. But the politics had changed. In uh, 1974, all three of the major federal uh, parties had agreed that this was a good idea to go ahead with. They agreed again for different reasons. And, but they were all in favor of it. But by 1979, Canada was uh, in a period of economic recession and restructuring. And the capacity to sell it to people as a program that would work Politically, people just said, we can't do it. Uh, and particularly the conservatives at that time had really changed. Um, so it was shelved. And the material from it actually ended up disappearing for a large, long period of time, all of those wonderful coding uh, sheets, until, uh, I'll, I'll skip by the income levels and taxation rates here, I think. Um, and a little bit of, I'll, I'll tell you just a little bit about the survey. Uh, 250 pages. Uh, this actually went beyond just the finances of it. It actually had some really interesting questions about how did you spend your leisure time. One of the things the researchers became interested in was uh, would having more money actually uh, change the family dynamics? Would people uh, spend more time playing with their kids? Uh, you know, what were kind of the social benefits of this kind of program? So there was a lot of, lot of data that was collected uh, repeatedly out of the same sample over all these years. Very elaborate kind of uh, uh, program. Uh, ultimately, uh, there was no final program that or report that was ever issued. It was just simply uh, uh, shelved. Uh, there was a, a couple of academic reports came out. Humman uh, Simpson's mentioned here. Uh, but then finally, a few years ago, and this brings it up to the present time, Dr. Evelyn Forger at the University of Manitoba. She works primarily in uh, uh, the health area. Uh, and she found all this material. Uh, my understanding, it was all stuck in a bunch of boxes in an uh, airport hangar in Winnipeg. And she managed to track it down. And uh, they took the stuff and then got the money to actually put it through modern computer systems where you can actually do much more elaborate things now with computers. You can cross-tab and do correlations, all kinds of stuff. The other thing she did with it was she then uh, brought together the original MinCom data with the health records data in Dauphin, Manitoba and area at that time. And uh, what she found out of that, and this is uh, an exciting and positive result out of it, found that the residents tended to be healthier, had fewer accidents and injuries, uh, and, and so versus those people who are not on the program. Uh, there was a slight decrease in births in Dauphin. Uh, this may or may not have been related to the fact that uh, some women now entered into the workforce who may not have uh, otherwise. 
Uh, there was a really interesting finding in uh, the increase in staying in school among teenagers. So a lot of teenagers who may have felt that they had to go into the workforce early to help support the family now stayed in the workforce so, and, or stayed in, in school and got their education. Um, the, so there, there were some interesting and uh, generative kind of uh, things came out of it. Uh, I've already talked a little bit about what actually happened here, the crisis, stagflation, etc. Uh, there was also kind of a general reduced faith in government at that time, which I think is still with us. Uh, and other solutions came, came along uh, that were suggested during the 1980s and afterwards, uh, largely neoliberal in form. Uh, finally, uh, as I say, the why is it returned? Well, I think it's really returned because of uh, the fear of mass employment, unemployment. Uh, so, Let's cut quickly to the pros and cons here. Uh, the pros uh, reduces other social costs. So this is we amalgamate programs and uh, then it's going to save us money as taxpayers. Uh, objectivity in determining eligibility and benefits. Uh, objectivity meaning actually really there's no kind of means testing, nothing subjective about who gets it. Avoid, avoids targeting payments towards uh, particular people. Avoidance of stigma and moral judgment, so you just get it as a right of citizenship. Administrative efficiency, so you get rid of a whole bunch of people who are bureaucrats doing things. Uh, having money in your pocket may allow spouses to leave bad marriages. So in the past, if uh, lack of money was the reason you stayed in a bad marriage, well, now you'd be not uh, have that as a reason. Uh, the argument is it enhances personal freedom. And finally, uh, enhances, uh, enhances the right of citizenship, not bureaucratic decision-making. So you get it as a citizen, not because some bureaucrat is, again, interfering in the process. The cons of it, uh, financial costs. The uh, budget officer has pointed out it could be expensive. Uh, creates work and disincentives. This one actually has been, uh, is an argument, but it's not a very good argument. We never actually found, and the reason is because, in fact, the amount of money given people is so low that you're always still better off to work anyway. So that's not a great reason, but there are better ones. Subsidizes low-wage employers. That's, that's to me, a, a fairly serious criticism. There is a problem of who sets the basic income level, uh, and is it inflation protected? So that uh, you can well imagine this program, however you set it, is going to be set at such a low level and it's never going to be indexed, and people will just continue to fall behind because that's what happens with all these kinds of social programs. It actually increases state control. Uh, rather than liberating people from either the state or the market, it actually does both. You're essentially trapped in this. It's actually a poor substitute for active labor policy, um, such as let's create better jobs out there. Let's redistribute the hours of work uh, one of my solutions, as I've talked about for the last couple of years, is we need to work away from the 37 and a half hour work week. We should be thinking about 30 or 25 hour work weeks. If there are people who aren't employed, we have to start thinking how to redistribute the work and the profits of all the wonderful machinery that is going to come on to displace people. Um, finally, we also have to reconceptualize even what work is. Right? We have to not think that 
we as human beings are tied to work, but how are we tied to each other as human beings? Um, it may actually, another criticism, strengthen traditional uh, gender norms, as some women may leave the labor force, but again, these would be people in fairly low opportunity uh, jobs anyway. And finally, as I say, it doesn't free workers from market forces. In fact, they're more tied than ever to market forces. It's just that you're unemployed, we give you some money, be happy about it, except it's such a low amount of money that you now uh, feel like you should go in to get some amount more of money at some really badly paying job. Uh, other problems with GAI, there are so many variations of it that uh, need to be explored. Um, the basic income levels and taxation levels that I haven't really dealt with here, but uh, is a problem. And finally, there's the issue, and this is why so many people dispute why they like or don't like it. Uh, there's various competing aims here. There's poverty reduction, there's administrative efficiency, this is why Milton Friedman liked it, uh, or economic adjustment, is it to kind of transition us into something else again. Uh, so. And I'll finish off with those citations. So my, my final comment is, yes, I understand why a lot of people like it, a lot of people who are socially concerned about dealing with issues of poverty and uh, low wages, et cetera. But I think there's actually better ways to think about how we deal with the working poor and at the same time also thinking about those people who are still outside of the labor force. Uh, but this requires a kind of re- conception of, of our social policies as a whole, and I think a reconception of what we actually mean by work. We need to really think about what is work, especially in the 21st century, as automation begins to kick in. So thank you very much. Enjoy your lunch, and I look forward to your questions afterwards. <laughs>